So music has a, this incredible power to alter our perception of time. And that's, I think, what's going on in Stonehenge. And that's one of the reasons I figure there was music at whatever ritual happened at the solstices in Stonehenge. And the, the sort of our, our world and then the, the high worlds as well. And it, it's clearly a place that they went to take part in ceremonies where they were probably looking to access altered states of consciousness and to certainly explore uh, connections with other beings, with the past, with their own history, with their ancestors, um, to call upon the sun spirits, the moon spirits. There's a single stone quite a long way outside this stone circle. And if you stand in the middle of the stone circle on the summer solstice, the sun rises right behind this single stone and it looks almost like a cat's eye with the stone in the middle of the sun while you're looking down the ceremonial avenue approach into Stonehenge. The sun shines up that walkway and into the centre of Stonehenge. Hello, 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 Fire Tribe. It is homie Romy. Wow. What a blessing it is to be alive. To be resonating within the celestial body of our amazing and mysterious planet. Today, we are bringing you a bonus episode. Well, it's a bonus because it was recorded originally for the Patreon show, but I'm deciding to put it out on the regular feed because even though it doesn't necessarily tie in to ancient Sumerian and Egyptian mysticism and lore and histories and these different pyramid stories, it does tie into the importance of resonance and sound of our ancient ancestors and some of the reasoning behind why these megalithic structures exist. A lot of it has to do with ascension and sound, vibrating, dancing, singing and chanting, moving and grooving within the community. So this episode is an absolute banger and I know you guys are going to enjoy it. I love you Fire Tribe so much. I want to start out by saying thank you to the Telegram family. Seriously, you guys are absolutely amazing. Every day, every single day, I feel a joyous goodness within my being because of, honestly, the Telegram family and the Fire Tribe family. This show has done amazing things in my life that has made me feel massive amounts of graciousness towards this crazy paradigm of reality. So digging into these mysteries has been a limelight for me, and I hope that it is for you as well. I would love for you guys to join the Telegram group chat. The link will be in the show notes, of course. It's so amazing to be traveling here on this murky Merkaba through the celestial waters of space 
outer space, inner space, inner earth, outer earth, whatever you want to call it, the fractalized existence of reality, the conscious culture, the web, the Akashic web of understanding, it goes deep, it goes very deep, and we are at a turning time, a time for us to take advantage of the current situation to be vocal about what our spirit is asking us to receive, to feel, to be powerful in areas and way which we may have not been before. This is a huge transitional period. And these topics are important to bring our optimized spirit back into play through resonance, through the reverberation of the canyons, the songs of the wind, the whistling of the water. The land speaks. The rain, the grass, everything, the movement and singing, singings of birds. It is all relevant and it is all here. I want to thank you guys so much. Like I said, this was going to be a Patreon episode, but I thought it was good enough to put on the regular feed. That being said, if you want to support Dan and I, the best way to do it is $3 a month on the Patreon, where we put out new episodes, things unrelated to our monthly topics, and other compilations. Dan has another show with Andy called The Deep Chill. We have some episodes of, uh, of Expanded Understandings, which is another private show that I do. And I got some other fun stuff in the works. So if you guys want to support us, go and do that. That's amazing. Appreciate you. And either way, we'd like you to contact us because we want to talk to you. If you want to email us about any sort of revelations or lucid dreams you've had about Egypt or Samaria or living in a wild land or experiencing something on a lucid level, absolutely. All of our contact information will be in the show notes. Also, I want to let you guys know about a new show that started with Mystic Mark from My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, Chad Stumke, an author and researcher that we've had here on this show, and Tara, Mark's girlfriend. It's called Esoteric America. And we're interviewing people from all over the country that are authors, but they're also researchers. They're also just existers. People who have never even been on a podcast before. But they felt inclined to look into the mysterious history of their own town. And they thought that just starting with the exoteric basics led them down rabbit holes they never even knew were in their backyard. And that's what Esoteric America is. We're creating a map of understanding. And through the power of community, we're able to make a beautiful show. Be sure to check it out on YouTube and anywhere that you have an RSS feed or podcast program player. Esoteric America check it out thank you fire tribe so much filled with gratitude each day by being a part of this podcast community seeking truth and light justice from the land and for the land please enjoy today's amazing episode with professor rupert till
Hey everybody, welcome to Rising from the Ashes. It is me, Homie Romy, and today I am pleasured and pleased to be chatting with Professor Till, aka Professor Chill. I found him through some research of the Archaeo Acoustics, um, you know, diving deep within the uh, architectural mysteries of our history and i found this paper called songs of the stones and it's a um a, a deep dive paper into stonehenge and its acoustic properties and you know we've talked about this on the show uh different acoustic properties of subterranean realms uh subterranean places and different uh cathedrals and things like that basilicas and such but never have we even touched on Stonehenge on this show, which is quite in, quite interesting and fascinating because you know we we go all around uh, all around the world and we we just happen to skip over Stonehenge. So this is going to be great. And hello, Rupert, uh, Professor Till, how are you doing today, sir? Hi, great. Good to be speaking to you over in America. Yes, yeah, we you know something that your paper shined a light on uh i'm a washingtonian actually i was uh born and raised in washington state and you brought up the mary hill um the mary hill stonehenge which i'd never heard of i'd never heard of a complete replicate of the stonehenge here in the states and it happens to be in washington and i looked it up and mary's hill is a very interesting location to put this you know it's right on this dividing river this major river between washington and oregon and it's right by the yakima valley indian reservation <clears throat> which is a huge area in washington which is so powerful uh, a piece of land when it comes indigenously speaking and earthly speaking magnetically speaking and i'm sure resonantly speaking so thank you for bringing that to my attention and much much more um do you mind giving us uh maybe some of your history as to how you got into music and how you became a professor of music yeah sure i, I mean i've i've always loved music as a kid i sang in choirs and um, studied music at school, then started playing in bands when I was a teenager and went off to university to study music. And after that, I started working in the music industry for a while. I studied music technology. I worked in venues. I did tour management. I composed and performed. Uh, and I kind of blundered into academia. I, I was working in a venue and a sound engineer. It was late nights. It was hard work. And I, I got this job where I just had to look after kids doing music technology on computers and help them out <laughs> when they got stuck and it was just a I thought I can do that with my eyes closed and it was a really nice job and then it turned out I was better qualified than any of the te teachers the lecturers <laughs> uh, so within three months I was a full-time lecturer and I've just sort of worked my way up through to being full professor that's honestly very inspiring <laughs> that should be inspiring to anybody I mean that's that's amazing um it reminds me that you know working in the field of certain positions that you have passion for um if you didn't go to school for these things because you know thousands of people go to school for music theory and to learn rhythm and to learn sound but when you're encapsulated with your passion 
you know, it, it, it seems to drive you to places that school can't necessarily offer that right off of the bat. Yeah, it's very true. I mean, I started off flunking my exams when I was 18 and having to resit the year and then went off to university to not it wasn't an elite university at all I got a lower second degree but I was just obsessed with music so I kept doing it kept doing it did my PhD over six years part-time while working full-time just kept going and kept going and eventually it's you see it with the students the ones who come in who are super talented they're okay they've maybe had loads of advantages the ones that do really well are the ones who just work and work and work and that's the way forward. I think I yeah, I totally agree. Well, that's that's like I said, inspiring. You know, you can you can get you can be an associate dean at a college if you uh, have perseverance and passion for your uh, your creative arts. So, I, I I want to dive right into this. You are a uh, would you consider yourself an expert in sound archaeology? Yeah, exactly. I. I had this strange introduction to it. I, w I was a professor of music trained in, well, I wasn't a professor back then, but I was trained in composition and music technology and that sort of thing. And then I moved in next door to uh, a group of archaeologists who lived in the next house and they became really oh, wow. close friends. And one of them then moved into my house and he was working at Stonehenge. And he introduced me to this stuff where archaeologists were studying acoustics in order to learn more about ancient sites. And I realized, that, well, this is OK, but they're archaeologists. They don't really know about acoustics. And there's lots more that could be done. And I realized that because I had studied acoustics. And, and so I sort of dived into it and got involved uh, and worked. Yeah, the first place I worked was Stonehenge. The first thing I got interested in was was what that might have sounded like in the past to be at Stonehenge 5,000 years ago. <laughs> that is, that's fascinating. Can you, can you give us just, um, you know, I, I, I myself, um, I've studied, uh, self-studied, you know, music, music theory and dived into synthesizers, you know, hours on end and into, into the wee early <laughs> hours of the morning, you know, playing with the different uh, sine waves and decays and reverbs and all the things. But can you give our listeners maybe what are the basic fundamentals of acoustics? And then maybe we can segue into what acoustics are in the field. Yeah, so every building, every space actually, has an acoustic. And acoustic is just a way of describing what the architecture, the shape of the space sounds like. So if you make a noise, like if you clap your hands, the sound goes out from your hands when you clap and goes in all directions. And at some point it might hit wall. And then some of that sound will bounce back to you and you'll hear a reflection. And then it might go further away the other way and then bounce back but a little later. So a slightly later reflection. And all those reflections create the acoustics of the space. And acoustics is kind of made up of three things. One is resonance, which is where something, a space, a, a body of air, like in a, in a room, rings at a certain frequency because it just is the right shape. Like when you blow across the top of a bottle and it goes hoot and the bottle resonates because it's a certain size. If it's a big space, it's lower. If it's a small space, it's higher. Uh, so there's resonance. Then there's echo, which is where sound goes from you 
hits a very flat surface and comes back to you quite a long time later and you hear an echo. We've all heard that, like on a mountain or in a forest, actually. And the third thing is reverberation. And reverberation is where there are lots of echoes, lots of reflections, but they're very close to you. So you hear them as a sort of bunch of echoes all at once. So that's what you hear in a bathroom when, or, uh, when, when you're in the shower or something and there's lots of tiled walls, so it's very reflective. The sound goes away from you, hits those tiled surfaces and comes back, but they're really close, so it comes back all at once. And you hear that reverberation as well in churches and temples, anywhere with really solid flat surfaces. So resonance, echo and reverberation are the three things we tend to find. And we get them in churches, we get them in our we get all of these things in our houses, they're a bit more subtle there. But you get them also in ancient archaeological spaces and sometimes they're quite interesting. So do you think that these ancient archaeological spaces were actually designed for specifically for their acoustics or it was one of the fundamentals in creating these spaces? No, I don't I don't think so, but on the other hand, I think they were aware of the effect of building something a certain shape. So they knew if they built something big and round like a stone circle at Stonehenge, then it would have a certain type of acoustics because they the people who built that had probably built other stone circles before mm. or wooden circles. So they knew that if you did something circular, it had a sort of circular sound. But it was either a byproduct of building that shape or it was all integrated. I mean, a lot of people at this time didn't have the word music. The word music didn't exist. It was like in some parts of Africa, for example, there are tribes that have a word like ngomo, which means music, sound, dance, celebration, cult. It, things weren't separated like this is music and this is sound and this is language and this is celebration. If someone's clapping their hands, maybe they're applauding or maybe they're making music or maybe they're trying to scare off a bird. It's all the same. It's still clapping your hands. We think of those three things as different. Whereas in the past, you know, you might have been working and clapping your hands to do something or making mm -hmm. knocking some things and working it would make a rhythm and that rhythm would also have been quite meaningful almost ritual like because the work would have been meaningful but it always also would have been functional and musical and they might have sung a lot so these different separations we put music in a box you know we list, put headphones on listen to a band or something that's music Whereas I think we, if we go back to the past, we have to think of acoustics and music and sound as all wrapped up in this world where the spirits are surrounding us and we're living in a in a enchanted, ritualized world. Yes. Yeah. I love that so much. You know, through through my um, individual studies of looking at uh, ancient architecture, you know, I you notice a lot of round and ogival is a, a big ogival arches and rotundas and all of this specific almost pythagorean type of sacred geometry uh um, effects that are put into these places and it seems like there is this massive encompassing purpose for this whether it is for the spirits to move around and the energy of a soul uh you know whether here within this realm or outside uh, spiritually speaking um and ancestrally speaking um but sound itself you know when you when you start to dig into the uh 
the the higher echelons of understanding of history you look at things like the seven sacred sciences and uh architecture and music are definitely a part of those seven sacred sciences and they they seem to coexist within each other so it is interesting to to look at these spaces with that type of viewpoint and i don't know much about the culture itself that is said to have built stonehenge can you enlighten me a bit on on more of that and maybe some of these other structures that are connected yeah i mean the over the last few years the team that have been working these archaeologists like my friend ben chan who was working with mike parker pearson at stonehenge have discovered amazing things and it seems like there are some natural markings in the ground. It looks like a wall, but it's not. It's like where water running down has eroded what looks like a ceremonial pathway. And mm. it leads up a hill and it's quite long. And it goes from this river up a hill to a particular place, um, a nice flat place. And this this strange looking, what looks like a, a road that's been created by nature or the gods or whatever, happens to point directly to um, the solstice rising and setting sun. So it's aligned to the, um, to the solstice, the shortest or longest day of the year. So we know that people celebrated the setting of the sun on the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year. Mm. Uh, and it looks like they went to this place because the sun would appear at the end of this road and it would be like the sun would be going down this road the gods are created and first of all they created wooden um wooden circles there and w some sort of wooden patterns with mm. poles mm -hmm. uh, and then they started to um to put stones there now interestingly the first stones they put there were slightly shorter stones they're about as tall as a person and they come from wales from Priscelli Hills, and they've actually now found the post hole. They found that there was a stone circle in Wales, and um, they found holes in the ground that are exactly the same shape as a strange shaped one of this one of the stones at Stonehenge. It's a bit of an odd shape, so they know that they took the stones out of these holes and carted them hundreds of miles, and they weigh tons. That's um, insane. To Stonehenge, and it seems likely they did this because there was some sort of agreement between the the people in wales and the people in uh, in england and that it was some sort of coming together of people some sort of okay we're going to we're going to bring this temple and put it down at stonehenge uh, because we're going there's some sort of collaboration so this stone circle this massive stone circle was transplanted and the stones were brought all the way from the magical place huh. in wales to create well to this magical place in in england um, that is fascinating i mean that just i've never heard that that story of that uh part of stonehenge and just thinking about these stone they are huge you know people are always you know just pondering how they even built it and why they built it but like now we have a little bit of insight that it came from a more old uh, and older and sacred space in in wales and so does this do they have a, a um 
a name for this group? I know it was built uh, about 5000 BC, but do we have any connections to any other, you know, uh, cultures like? We don't really know what to call these people because the peoples of of the British Isles in those days were lots of small tribes dotted around from the Scots in the north to the Britons in the south and the the Welsh. They 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 there would be you know small groups that occupied areas. There was no unified thing, so we don't really know. It's too long ago. There's no writing, so we don't mm. really know who these people are. But we do know that the stones seem to be commemoration of a dead person because they started they elaborate they build a circle of stones and then they build and it's a smallish circle of stones and then they build these huge stones that they put in the middle i mean vast ones they're four times the height of a person with the classic um, arches so a stone on the top as well and then they put this massive ring of stones around the outside with lintels on the top which is a very complicated design, very hard to make. Um, and when they've dug up some of the holes that... They move the stones around sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, every, you know, every few hundred years, they seem to rearrange them. And in some of the old holes where they'd taken the stones out, they'd done some digging and they've investigated. And what they found is bones, human bones, burials. So it seems that they, they would bury somebody's bones in these post holes and then put a wooden post or then a, a stone in there so it seems like the stones would just like nowadays we have headstones to mark a grave that this this was what was happening they've studied the bones and they've looked at how old they were and they're about 30 40 years apart or maybe as much as 50 or 60 so in oh, other wow. words it's a generation yeah so every generation, someone was buried in one of these things. So there was a wise person um, of some kind, some sort of priest or shaman or whatever, was buried. They put a stone in to commemorate them. And then somebody else, I guess, took over. And then when they died, they were buried. And that's what seems to be happening. So Stonehenge was a place of the ancestors. It was like it, it was a place to go and visit the great ancestral spirits of the past the famous shaman the famous priest the famous ritual makers um the the great leaders of the time and some of these people were from europe some of them were from scotland so they weren't just local it seems people were coming from long distances from the whole of britain from farther scotland where they first start making stone circles from wales from england even from europe and these people are being buried once a generation um, so it's quite a story. And there's actually another huge site near Stonehenge called Dorrington Walls where they have wooden circles. And it seems like the wooden circles are for the living. That's what, because they found houses there and they found bones of animals that have been eaten. They found what gets left when people live somewhere, you know, sort of rubbish, garbage, <laughs> if you like, but and houses that people lived in. So people lived in this place called Durrington Walls that had wooden circles and a wooden palisade around the outside. And wood is alive and living and for the, for the living. And then from time to time, they went to Stonehenge to visit the ancestors, perhaps on the special days like the solstices, where they believed that the boundaries between the living and the dead were somehow shorter as the sun reached its weakest and it only sort of jumped over the... You know, it appears for just a few hours and then disappears. And on that day, they would celebrate. And then 
also on the longest day probably in the middle of the summer. So it seems to be that they came from all across the UK to the, this place called Stonehenge to celebrate the solstice, to build this crazy temple together and maybe rearrange some stones which would have taken hundreds of people uh, and to have, I guess, a big festival, big celebration. It's fascinating, really. Wow, that is insanely fascinating. And we need to do some some uh, deeper digging into this culture because it seems like it resonates with some of the um, traditional aspects of the indigenous here in America with the mound builders, the mound building civilizations that were here. You know, there's some great work done by uh, Dr. Gregory Little, um, probably one of the most extensive mound researchers and authors. And he kind of correlates a lot of these, you know, a lot of these same instances where these burial sites, these mounds were built for burials of the shamans of that area. That's where they found, you know, big giant bones, like bones up to eight to nine feet tall. And they're uh, associated with the solstices. They're lined up celestially and they, they were associated with uh, uh, the solstices. So it'd be interesting to find the correlations and connections between that. Maybe there was some sort of global uh, civilization that was kind of running these same ideologies, uh, you know, that were associated with the, the solstices. And we know that. We know that our ancient ancestors were heavily, I mean, to lack of a better term, obsessed with astrology and the stars and that was how they would map time and it was very important to know these different celestial timings and everything so this is super fascinating um but maybe let's let's dive back into the specific acoustics of stonehenge what are some of the findings things that fascinated you the most that maybe you had no idea going in that are heavy details of the acoustics here? Well, the, there was a guy called Aaron Watson who did a pilot project, which was quite simple. Uh, and he sort of, he found some resonances. So he found there were certain frequencies that would resonate, but he, he only took that so far. Um, what I found was that there was some reverberation. Um, so there was a sense of when you went into the circle, you being inside something. Not be, despite the fact that you're outdoors, you know, you could, there's no roof. Um, and also there's an echo. So it has all three of those things. Um, what we had to do to find that out was, was took years. I mean, to start mm. with, we visited the site because I, I theorized just doing some math or maths as we call it, um, to work out what the echoes might've been and resonances might've been. And so I had theories that about 47 hertz, which is a very low bass frequency, there would be this low frequency sound. Um, but I kind of wanted to confirm that. And it was big enough, a big enough space for there to be an echo. And then a TV program, actually the History Channel had a program called Mystery Quest, and they wanted to explore this. So they took us to Stonehenge and took us to Mary Hill, where there's this full-size replica of Stonehenge. 
Uh, the job with Stonehenge is half the stones missing, so it's like going into a cathedral that's been knocked down and expecting it to sound like a cathedral. <laughs> sure. It sounds a bit bit the same, but it's not quite the same. Um, so we found more at the Mary Hill Monument. And also we use this amazing piece of software. So when people build a concert hall, they don't just make some theory and build the concert hall and hope it sounds good. What they do is they create a digital model nowadays. Um, they drop the digital model into a very advanced computer program used by architectural acoustics experts and they can simulate what it will sound like when they build the concert hall. So my thinking was, ah, if I drop a computer model of Stonehenge into this architectural program, we can hear what Stonehenge sounded like. Um, so we were then able to create what's called an impulse response, which um, allows you to make convolution reverb and basically reconstruct the acoustics of Stonehenge. And we did that in four different periods, uh, time periods, so we could see how the acoustics changed over time. What were, what were the time periods? Uh, it starts, uh, let's see, it starts at about 4000 BC, where there's a sort of wooden circle. Then they put the... When they first bring the stones from Wales, they put them in a massive circle just inside a ditch, much bigger circle than we're used to now. It's more ah. like 90 metres across, whereas the one today is 30 metres across. Um, so they then rearrange it in a smaller circle and they build the, the big stones throughout the outside and the massive trilithons in the middle. So the first smaller circle is about, I think, 3,500 years ago, and then the the last period of it is perhaps 2,800, something like that. So you talk BC, this is 2,800, mm -hmm. sorry, BC. Yes, of course. So we're talking between, I don't know, maybe between um, four and 6,000 years ago. So this so the same is... Time they're, same time they're building the pyramids in Egypt. Yeah, yeah, and <clears throat> which is interesting because, you know, we dive into the uh, the antediluvian world here, uh, try to get into the pre-flood uh, time periods as much as we can, and uh, this month actually we are focusing on ancient Sumer, ancient Egypt, and so this time period is very interesting, and we've talked to a couple authors as well about the Irish and Egyptian connection. There was very much so cross-correlation between ancient Ireland and ancient Egypt. So, you know, this isn't too far off, but we're talking about, in case people forgot, this is an island. This is a big island that's surrounded all by water, which is very special and sacred and you know, today in our rustling and bustling and hustling world that we live in, uh, today's modern society, you know, I, I think it's kind of lost its magical touch. The, this this land, you know, this this special island that you live on, you know, it's because people just tend to kind of turn a nose to what our true history is that this this land that you're on and speaking about is very sacred. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating place and you do feel the weight of history when you're there. I mean, it's, Stonehenge is kind of an Axis Mundi it's, or World Tree. It's, it's, it's a place where people went to 
transport between the worlds of the living and the dead, you know, in in that sort of shamanic thing. It's sort of the underworld. Yes. You're talking about, and then the the sort of our, our world, and then the the higher worlds as well. And it, it's clearly a place that they went to take part in ceremonies where they were probably looking to access altered states of consciousness and to certainly explore um, connections with other beings, with the past, with their own history, with their ancestors, um, to call upon the sun spirits and the moon spirits who, I mean, it, it, it must have seemed unimaginable what the sun was. This thing that rose in the morning and kept you warm, and, yeah, <laughs> and then would disappear and then reappear, and then the moon would appear, and they'd appear in different places. And Stonehenge would show that when the when the sun rises on the summer solstice, it rises. There's a single stone quite a long way outside this stone circle, and if you stand in the middle of the stone circle on the sol summer solstice. The sun rises uh, right behind this single stone, and it looks almost like a cat's eye with the stone in the middle of the sun while you're looking down the ceremonial avenue approach into Stonehenge. The sun shines up that walkway and into the centre of Stonehenge. And even today, you know, on the summer solstice, there'll be 20,000 people at Stonehenge celebrating. And you're not allowed to take anything electronic in there. So it, it's quite a when you go there, you get some sort of sense of what it would have been like. Wow. You know, five or 6,000 years ago. And you hear these acoustics because people bring drums and people bang drums oh. and chant and sing. And the effect is when you start on the outside, like at, at this stone that's way on the outside, you can hear this sort of muffled, distant sound. As you get closer, if you clap your hands, the sound bounces off the stones and comes back to you and you hear this echo. But you hear this sound coming out of Stonehenge with this sort of slightly mushy quality. As you get closer, it becomes a bit more defined. But then there's this wall, this circular wall of stones with these gaps. When you walk, go through the, the gap into the centre, it's like suddenly you're inside something. There's a feeling you can't see inside very easily because these stones block your view as do people. When you're inside, suddenly it opens out and it's like walking into a building. And acoustically, you feel the sound suddenly opens up as well. The high frequencies appear. There's an echo inside that appears. If you stand in the middle and there's no one there, if you clap your hands, the sound leaves your body, goes out in all directions, hits, hits all of the stones in the circle at the same time and returns in like a kind of focusing effect. So you get in the centre, you get this focusing effect of sound. And there's a couple of other places where you get that. So what you hear is if you clap, you hear clap, clap, and you hear a little echo. Uh, and you also hear the sound coming back from all directions off the stone. So you get a bit of a, a bit of a delay. It sounds quite subtle to us nowadays because we're used to cathedrals that have these incredible acoustics. Mm -hmm. But to them, there were no other stone buildings. It, there were very, there was very few stone anything in the, in the whole of Britain at that time. So Stonehenge would have sounded a bit like you were walking into some kind of cave, but you weren't. You're outside and you could see the moon above you and the stars. And yet you had the sound of being in a cave and caves were quite sacred to them as well. So mm. Stonehenge is like they're building themselves their own cave. Caves were also spaces of the underworld, mm. spaces where the spirits 
lived, you could go into the earth and you could visit the earth spirits. They were strange places. And um, it was like they no longer were living in caves. They were building settlements. They were starting to become hunter-gatherers, but they were starting to maybe herd some animals. Um, they were starting to live and settle on the land, so they were almost creating their own caves, their own places of the dead and the spirits for their ancestors to live in. You, you know what's fascinating is is thinking about you know thinking about that the that our ancestors you know the transition of building for, uh, just just creating society creating community creating these things but the understanding of physics you know whether or not <laughs> we can call it ancient physics or they called it physics they had an understanding of physics that was it's it's baffling to think that most people don't comprehend physics now and couldn't build something so simple for, um, you know, without studying it, you know? And so the question lies is where did these, these people learn physics? And I, another question I have is were these stones, were any of them, were they created or they were all cut and quarried, um, uh, and brought there, you know, the, we talked about them being brought from Wales, but were they created stones? Were they, they made by some sort of masons at the time uh, in the constituents of these stones? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, the top of, you, you know, you see these sort of arches where you have two verticals and you have a stone going across the top and that's the famous Stonehenge image. Well, they use like a, a sort of a, a tenon joint. It's a woodworking joint to hold the stones together. So these were people who lived, who worked with wood and stone all the time. And yet the original stones were made in Wales and were shaped there. But then the later stones were found maybe 50, 30 miles away. Um, and they were, they were dragged in place and then they were shaped in place because they found thousands and thousands of tiny flakes of stone. Oh. So, so what they do is they get, it, they get stones that were roughly the right size and shape. And then they'd get them on size and they'd get another stone on a rope, probably, and swing it at the stone and whack it. So a little bit chipped off and whack it again and whack it again to, to make the stones beautifully curved. So the inside curved round. The stones aren't flat. They're, they're shaped. So they're slightly concave and they're slightly con uh, vertically and horizontally. And they're smooth. They've been smoothed out by thousands of pecks from a stone whacking these things so when you're inside something that has an echo and that has a bit of reverberation can you imagine being in a cathedral and getting two stones although probably 50 people getting mm -hmm. stones and whacking them as hard as you can against another stone the noise would have been astonishing and each time you hit a stone you'd have got, got a little echo and then your natural tendency is to do that in time to the echo Mm -hmm. And so starts to build up this rhythm. And you can imagine everybody in the space whacking these these stones in time and and building up this immense rhythm, this immense resonance actually in the space. Um, and even later, even when the Vikings visited this place, various people, it was the Romans visited it and talked about it as a temple of Apollo. The Vikings carved hammers on the stones. So almost oh. as if they were saying, oh, uh, right, okay, if you hit these stones, there's a tradition of hitting the stones. Um, even as in the Victorian era, so 100 years ago, some of the stones actually had little ha 
hammer on a chain so you could whack the stones and chip a bit <laughs> off and take it with you. And people were doing that to this famous monument only, you know, 100 years ago. So there was this tradition <laughs> of hitting the stones and making sound. And some people say that some of the stones actually ring a little bit, have this ringing quality. But there's various things. So there's this echo, there's a reverberation, a bit like a bathroom. I'll demonstrate them in a minute. But there was also this low-frequency hum. So if you imagine a wine, well, a bottle, that when you blow over the top of it, it makes a noise. But now make that bottle 30 metres across and made of stone. That's kind of what Stonehenge is. And if the wind blows very loud over the top of it, just like us blowing over the top of the bottle, it makes this incredible low humming sound. And one of the reasons we know that is from um, a famous author called Thomas Hardy, who wrote a book called Tess of the D'Urbervilles, which is a famous piece of mm. English literature. Thomas Hardy is a very famous Victorian, 100-year-old you know, author. Oh, from the wrote, from the early nineteenth century. Yeah, and he well from maybe yeah eight, eighteen nineteen. Um, he wrote this book called Tess of the D'Urbervilles, and in it Tess runs away. She lives, she lives nearby, and she ends up at Stonehenge, and she's she's hiding in Stonehenge, and she says she could hear the uh, the the sounds of 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 night sounds echoing from the stones and the wind causing this booming tune, he calls it. And in, I managed to track down a uh, interview with Thomas Hardy, who lived nearby, who had a stone in his garden that he'd acquired somehow uh, and was quite obsessed with Stonehenge. And he actually campaigned for Stonehenge to be taken into public ownership. Uh, when they were thinking, when whoever owned it was thinking of selling it. And they, they interview and say, what's the best thing about Stonehenge? And he says, when the wind blows and you hear this amazing humming sound. So wow. he wrote, that's, in his, <laughs> that's in his diaries. And he wrote that in an interview. And then he writes it into this, this book. And we did this research and discovered that, yes, there's this low frequency hum. And what it is, it, it's... If you imagine a drum, it has particular resonances, but mm. there are two. It's an on-axis and on-axis resonance. There's two, one at like 47 hertz, one at 48 hertz. So they're very, very close, and they kind of combine to make the effect even stronger. So if the wind blows really hard, I've never managed to hear it, but um, you could, especially if all the stones were there, hear this sound. So one of the things we did was go to Mary Hill, in in America, in Washington State, as you say, on the boundary between Oregon and Washington State, it's in the middle of quite not quite desert, but very dry land. Almost, yeah, you're almost hitting desert yeah. right there. It, I mean, it's beautiful around there, very quiet. And um, I I took this massive bass sub bin that was <laughs> able to because it's hard to produce 47 hertz, uh, so that we could make a sound at 47 hertz and try and stimulate this low-frequency resonance. And it worked. And oh, we wow. put the Mary, Hill the Mary Hill Monument into resonance, created what's called a standing wave, which means all of the air becomes kind of activated in maximum and minimum. It's like there's an acoustic sine wave where if you walk across it, it gets louder and then it gets quieter, and then it gets louder and quieter as you walk across it. And it just did weird... When you spoke, it did weird things to your voice and... It was very, very strange effect. 
And what we also did, acoustics works in doublings. So 48 hertz, if you double that to 96 hertz, it's, that's twice the number. 48 times 2 is 96. And that's what we call an octave. So if 48 hertz was a C, then 96 octaves would be a C and an octave higher. Bah, bah. It's the same note, but just an octave higher. Uh, so what you get is what's called sympathetic vibration. So if you make a noise at 48 hertz, it rings at 96 and double that, which is 192 and double that, which is whatever. And it goes the other way as well. So if you make a sound at 48 hertz, if you make it at 24 hertz or at 12 hertz, if you do something twice as often, it kind of reinforces it every other beat. So that's kind of what's happening. So we also, if, if you make something at 12 hertz, that means 12 times a second. So uh, this sounds very mathematical, but w what that is is a very fast rhythm. It's kind of, it's actually about that speed. So we played that rhythm into Mary Hill with the idea that that 12 hertz which it would might stimulate 24 hertz and, and the 48 hertz um, resonant frequency. So a rhythm might create this bass hum, and it worked. And my acoustic colleague said, that's not going to work. It's not going to work. I said, can we try it anyway? He said, if you must, since we've done everything else, yeah, there's time. And it worked, and it was, it was amazing. And we've theorised that if 200 people played drums in Stonehenge, you could artificially generate this low-frequency hum. So you start to hear... This, I mean, I can't even make a noise that low. Wow, I that have, is fascinating. What I do have is some recordings I can play you that do have... Please, that. please do. So, first of all, imagine you just... Here's, here's the sound of someone making some drum sounds, okay? So this is just some normal dry, no acoustics... that's two of us playing drums and we're playing it in time to the this tempo of 12 hertz just so that everything will sort of sync up then if you add Stonehenge's acoustics it sounds like this and in fact if you play drums and then you speed up the drums you start to hear the drums you can hear that echo wow on every drum and as you speed up you start to get in time with it. And you speed up and you speed up. This is going to take about a minute, but it's... It sounds at the moment, if you, if you were drumming at that speed, it would all sound a bit of a mess because of the echo in the space. But suddenly, it's in time. speed so what happens is the echoes come into time with your playing and I've done that at Stonehenge with a little drum and your just natural tendency is just to end up drumming in time to the building so you're drumming and Stonehenge is drumming with you essentially which I mean blew my mind but imagine 5,000 years ago uh, the effect that would have and imagine if people were indulging in psychotropic substances or they'd been dancing all night mm -hmm. or they're expecting the spirits to be with them and it's at night and it's the summer solstice and the moon's above you directly above and 
the effect would be quite something. highly highly spiritual people you know our ancestors they were tapped into something that i think that a lot of us can't really comprehend um when we talk about this time period you know we're talking about stone sacred stone circle builders we're talking about uh pyramid builders we're talking about some you know granted if they were hunter gatherers that's all fine and dandy but on the higher echelon of that society there was some higher understanding going on i think the 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 physics itself um and the constituents within the these higher understandings was just it was either just embedded into the consciousness at that time um you know or it was just very easy for us to retain this information because it's what we were focusing on and we were a lot more intuitive and into feeling and into connecting to source as you know as they like to call it and i like to call it that because i've had very spiritual experiences that leads me on this path and and so uh you know and another thing too that correlates is the electromagnetic field that is pouring out from this area. Um, now, I've seen studies that show that this is, in fact, on one of the major ley lines, um, and that entire your entire <laughs> British Isle right there that 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 island is it has a specific um, magnetic frequency that is protruding from the earth is there any correlation between that that you found in your research well that's complicated and quite controversial among scientists yes it is um, i i am okay. i'm aware of so, that <laughs> but i mean certainly these these people were they were from an oral culture an oral with an o means speaking and aural with an e means hearing and they mm -hmm. didn't write stuff down so they were highly attuned to what was going on, to the field surrounding them, and all sorts of on all sorts of levels, and you know they needed to know that if they heard a particular sound, that it was either food or a predator coming to attack them. You know they had to be very attuned to sound, and very affected by it. But they were also they they would have been surrounded by spirits the whole time. They would have imagined the world as being full of mm -hmm. full of spirits because most cultures are you know most most cultures that we know of that we've come across as as we've discovered different hunter-gatherer communities around the world have have all had this kind of embedded understanding of spiritual realms and different different kinds of connections um and different sorts of fields um so i mean i think that i think that's that's a very powerful thing and i, I think you're right that they're very sophisticated people i mean the ear earliest musical instrument we have from an archaeological perspective, is 40,000 years old. And it's a vulture bone flute, a flute made out of a bird, bird bone um, that was found in Germany. And actually, these things are found all over the world. You've, you've said that in your paper. One was found near Stonehenge, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So the Wils there's, a, there's a kind of pit. Um, the, and they found all sorts of strange things in it. But one oh, of the really? things they found was a bird bone. And it's a bird bone flute. It's clearly a flute. It's got finger holes. Uh, and so it's around the same period as Stonehenge being built. So this seemed an obvious thing to to demonstrate the acoustics of Stonehenge. So one of the things we did was use this acoustics program to simulate what the acoustics of Stonehenge would have sounded like in the past. That's what you hear in those drums. And here you can hear this Wilsford flute 
a friend of mine called Simon Wyatt, he actually made a model of one of these flutes based on the drawings of the original biochologists. And this is him playing it. Um, and you'll hear it here just played like in a field with no acoustics and then played again the same thing but with the reverberation. Oh, amazing. I love the samples. Now with Stonehenge. Wow. So quite holy a shit. I'm sorry. Yeah. That was that was. <laughs> I, I'm a musician, so like I I really really enjoy good reverb. And let me tell you guys something. You know, uh, for to all of our fellow musicians out there, and all the people who listen to music, reverb is on every single track you've ever listened to ever reverb is the most widely used thing in music production and and acoustics require reverb to even happen so sound reverberation is everything within our homes within the way we speak to each other the cars the music the in the production side of everything and that so i was just blown away by that i was well, that was beautiful. The earliest, the earliest musical instruments we found, we, I mean, I went on to do a project, having worked in Stonehenge, I went went on to work in some prehistoric caves with cave paintings. In fact, the, the oldest cave painting that we know of in Spain. Uh, and we showed statistically a relationship between where the cave paintings were and the acoustics that were there. These ancient flutes that were found that were made out of these vultures, vulture bones, because they were the biggest birds, so they had the biggest... Hollow, birds have hollow wing hollow yeah. bones for flying so you just take the bone chop the end off and you've got a flute basically make some finger holes um and um so these prehistoric bird bone flutes were found the oldest ones were found in caves and in fact we they found one place in france called isturitz where they found 30 different fragments or pieces of of 30 different flutes spread over 10,000 years. So in this cave, over a period of 10,000 years, people were coming to this cave to make flutes and other things as well. But when you play that flute in that cave, the acoustics in the cave are just wild. They're beautiful. And Stonehenge is them saying, OK, we're not in caves anymore, but this is this is a place like a cave. It's them building caves on the land. Well, it was celesti and, celestially planned too, right? So it has that kind of yeah. celestial coordination, which is just another layer of mind-blowingness. Like, absolutely. And and their kind of death rituals are becoming much more complicated. You know, the earliest the earliest musical instruments appear at the same time in Europe as the first European burials. And the first time people said, we're not just gonna, when someone dies, just leave them there wherever, just get rid of the body because it's no use anymore. We're gonna put it in a particular place in a particular way. So funerary rituals appear at the same time as musical instruments in caves. But by the time of Stonehenge, this whole idea of the dead has become much more sophisticated. They're visiting the ancestors to, they're not burying the ancestors, there. well they are, but. This is a place to come for the ancestors to live. They think of the ancestors as being alive. The African idea of, 
if someone remembers your name, you're still alive, you're not dead, mm. you know. And they're coming to visit to get wisdom from the ancestors, to commune with the ancestors, to find things out. And the evidence the ancestors are there could well be this low-frequency hum. The next thing I'll play you is quite an interesting thing. So what I've, if the wind blows really, really hard, then apparently Stonehenge will, will ring. Now, Ooh, you don't tend to want so to cool. go to Stonehenge when it's blowing, when there's a thunderstorm, because you get soaked and it's horrible. And you just, <laughs> you'd have to happen to be there on a day when the wind's blowing and you'd have to arrange permission to be inside. So it's very difficult to do. So we've kind of simulated it here. So what you'll hear is imagine there's that it's the equinox, maybe, which is the period between the two solstices, halfway between, um, when is equal sun and light and, and dark and the people are there it's autumn it's windy there's a thunderstorm but there's people drumming in the middle of the stonehenge that's what we've simulated it's about 45 seconds long and you'll hear the sound of someone walking into stonehenge up the avenue that leads to it and then going into the circle and as you go the acoustics of the space will alter the um the drum sound and also you'll hear you have to be wearing headphones for this if people are listening on their computers, speakers, they won't play this low frequency. But if you put headphones on, you'll hear this low frequency hum. It's quite something. Here we go. You've got some good speakers, sorry, headphones on there, I can tell. I've put on my little Sennheisers, which are just for, you know, doing podcasts. Holy, um, wow, I'm frozen in time I, right now. That was amazing. When I, had, when I had my really posh Sennheiser headphones on, uh, these ones, which are like studio headphones, they go down a lot lower and you get this big, did you get the big bass boom? I heard it, it was almost like someone was chanting, going, hmm. Um, what other sounds were happening? There was like there, there was there, there had to have been drum playing going on there, right? Yeah, I mean, you, we have evidence of drums in that period in Germany. We don't have so much in England because drums are made of wood and they just rot; they don't last. But we have lots of pots, uh, in particular beakers. And if you pots are often used to keep food on in. So how do you keep the food in? You put a skin on the top. What do you call mm -hmm. a pot with a skin on the top? Drum. It's it, it's a pot. Maybe things are pots, but they could also play them with drums. They could also hit sticks together. That I mean, drumming is almost ubiquitous. If not drumming, there could be hand clapping or stamping. Uh, there's you know the whole thing is a circle. People mm -hmm. could be doing circle dances. It seems perfectly reasonable. That no doubt. 
no doubt there'd be some da- some uh i get like that sufi the sufi vibe going on you know the whirling dervishes where there's yeah. spinning as a huge spiritual practice or dancing so but that recording it's like what exactly all was happening in that recording well there are very few things that can stimulate the low frequency hum of stonehenge but thomas hardy knew it was there they must have known it was there and they would have been interested to try and get that hum going because they would have thought, well, that's the voice of the ancestors. They're here. So they would have, if if there was thunder and rain, then the thunder has all this low frequency energy. So I reckon if you're in Stonehenge and there's lightning and thunder, apart from the risk of dying from being fried by electricity, by lightning, <laughs> you, the thunder probably sounds incredible in Stonehenge. And when all the stones there would have made the whole place go boom, it would have been astonishing. Um, and one day I'd love to be at Stonehenge in a thunderstorm, but I'd be a bit afraid. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so there's that going on. And then the other thing that could produce artificially this low frequency is drumming at the right speed in time to the music, if there's enough people, or any sort of rhythmic act. It doesn't have to be drumming. Actually, we found small drums, little hand drums would work. So probably clapping would work as well if there were enough people. Um so some or stamp clapping and stamping would work, or you, maybe they've got bells on their feet or whatever. And I could right, imagine. You have those those sort of circle dances that you see in in, for example, Kazakhstani zikirs, where people go around in circles. And there are lots of circle dances in Native American culture, in fact, all around the world. And when you have this circular ritual space, it just looks as if, to me, that's what it's for. Um, there could have been people going in circles or standing in circles and drumming. And as you get, when you're outside, this, I mean, the circle would have been very sacred and it only takes so many people. I mean, even yeah. if now, if you go in the summer, you've got to kind of force your way in to, and to get to the best position is quite hard because it's quite packed in there. So in the past, probably you had, the most important people would have been in the center and you can't see from the outside very well and the closer to the middle you are you can see better and better so the sound right in the center is the most impressive sorry you asked what the sound was so i've got people (laughs) drumming in there and you've got the acoustics of the drumming you've got the echo and the reverberation doing funny things and also the resonances so as you walk in at some point suddenly the drums got much louder and that's as you go inside suddenly it's like opening the doors you go through this threshold this archway and when you go through it the sound just sort of pops suddenly becomes much more active and alive do you, do and, you oh keep going keep going sorry about well that. there's that there's that sense of then arriving that you are you've arrived mm-hmm. somewhere wow I, I, I it's it's insane that vi- i i would love to uh maybe get an mp3 of that and play it again at the at the end uh of the of the show when i'm when i do the post-production things like i always put in some you know sound clips intro intro songs and things and that was i mean yeah these headphones are really nice you know they're good and they caught everything in there and i was listening and just i i could just i could listen to that for probably an hour at a time and <laughs> have some experiences so i have you know i have a couple field field mics right i love my field mics and i suggest everybody no matter whether or not you make music or not i think a field mic for everybody is really really important because it's so fun to take this with headphones and be in nature and hear better than your ears can hear the magnets and the microphone can pick up insane tiny sounds and when you listen to thunder 
with headphones in this, you hear the initial crackling before the bang. It is fucking amazing. And so that's that's the kind of thing that I'm I'm getting with this, you know, as as we're digging into this Stonehenge, you know, in our ancestral history here, you know, I'm wondering if you know, the talk of deluges and cataclysms throughout Earth's earlier uh, years, you know, like they sim sometimes symbolize it as, you know, an ang like a teen going through its angst period as it grows into be a more matured planet because the planet is alive. It's a living thing that we are thus part of its ecosystem and not really vice versa. Maybe some speculate that we are. That's a whole completely different podcast. But um, so what I'm getting at is I'm wondering if there was a, you know, back in this day, if the sound was different, if the atmosphere itself, if the constituents of the atmosphere, the plasma, the the carbon in the air and just the 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 air being different, if that had a play at some of the acoustics. Well, one of the things is this quiet, is this silence. Um, if, if you go to Stonehenge today, there's a road pretty close. So when we went, we went at six in the morning to try and get there before there was too much traffic. But still, a lorry would go past. You see a <laughs> the lorry goes past. So they are putting that road underground to make it quieter. Uh, and But you will still hear some road noise and you still hear mechanical noises it's very hard to get away from that i mean i remember mm -hmm. going into the countryside i'm into field recording too right so i remember going into the countryside with very expensive pair of microphones to to capture a summer's day and i'm on top of this hill and i'm like i can hear a car where's the car <laughs> and i'm looking down this valley and literally i can see this car it's like five miles away and i can hear it still totally destroying my recording you know i want bees and flies and things and, and all i can hear is <laughs> in the distance and it's not there it's it wouldn't have been there it the sound at night would have been just the odd owl some nightingales corncrakes um <coughs> so the sound of echoes would have been much clearer cheers yeah don't forget to drink been... water everybody it's uh, very good for you it would have been much easier to hear those sounds and those sound effects. And we, those things are masked all the time to us. So we're not connected to them. We, our, our sound field is constantly crowded. We constantly have noise. And I'm sitting here and there's the, there's the buzz of the computer fan. I've mm -hmm. got some speakers that are making a noise and the central heating isn't on. But there's just loads of noises. Mm -hmm. When you take all of that away, suddenly other things become present. I mean, one of the things you hear at Stonehenge is the birds. So there are crows that live, uh, nest in the, you know, the points where the stones meet. There's like birds' nests. Oh, and wow. They, the Odinists love that. Oh, yeah. And they, they sit there on, t on top of the stones. And when they go, craw, you hear, craw, craw. Oh. You hear the echo on their voices. It's like... They're talking, it's their space. In fact, there's one that we were there once in the morning and there's a security guard <coughs> and one of these crows is quite tame. So it'll come and eat out of his hand. Oh, which wow. Is quite amazing. Um, so these birds are very much part of the landscape and you can imagine them being there back them as well and being an important... And th things like bird sounds, 
become very important. Mm -hmm. So we want, I, I was kind of thinking, well, what do I do with this stuff? Um, with the stuff about Stonehenge's acoustics. And one of the issues I had was I had to create a model of Stonehenge in order to do this acoustic study, right? To use this software, I had to build a digital model of Stonehenge. So I went to English Heritage and they had, they said, oh, there was a model made some years ago. We don't know where it will find it for you. And nobody had done anything with it. Somebody had built a model, but it was on a ancient PC. And apparently if you turned it on, it revolved at like 100 miles an hour because the, you can adjust the clock anyway. <laughs> no one had really used it to build an accurate model of Stonehenge, but, and I, but I needed one. So I worked with some graphic designers uh, and we built uh, an accurate model of Stonehenge using laser scans. Uh, each stone had a laser scan in three directions, so wow. point clouds, lots of hundreds and hundreds of points. We had to stick the point clouds together. We had to put all the stones on some LIDAR on the ground. We had to put that in the environment. We had to clad the stones in textures that look... I mean, when we were doing all this, I thought, well, if I'm going to build this model for the acoustics, it's going to look pretty cool as well. Can't we do some multimedia stuff where yes. you can walk around Stonehenge and you can... Um, so, and you can see it and hear it at the same time. So that immediately became a, a, a task for me. And I wanted to, I got into video game technology. I worked with multimedia designers. And yes, we did. Wow. We've released, we've released an app. So there's an app called EMAP Soundgate. And you can get it free on the Android store or the Apple store for a tablet or a smartphone, iPhone or iPad or Android, whatever. I'll put the uh, I'll put a link in the set in the show notes because that yeah. sounds really cool. Uh, not sorry to interrupt you, but I'm actually writing that down. Um, that's EMAP SoundLink. Soundgate. Soundgate. Oh, even better. I was inspired by Stargate, the TV show, and the idea would be like <laughs> it, it would be a Soundgate, and we actually had an installation where you went into this space, and we had video projections, uh, you know, two meter high, eight meters wide, 12 meter wide, semicircular video projections of Stonehenge. And you could sit in this projection of the model of Stonehenge and listen to it with headphones. But on the app, you can kind of do the same. So you can select four different or even five different periods of Stonehenge and you can hit play different instruments and you can hear what they sounded like in the space and you can walk around visually and there's one for pc and mac as well so you can do it on a laptop it looks great on a laptop because it obviously you have to minimize the graphics a bit on a phone the ipad's pretty good um and i have done a version for the oculus rift which is astonishing when you're in vr and you're in stonehenge and you're looking around and you we we've got it so that the sun rises so you're in an Oculus Rift on the solstice and you see the sunrise through the stones. It's And you hear the birds going, oh, and you hear the echoes coming off the stones. Wow. I have so many convolution feel, convoluted feelings about the Oculus. Yeah. Uh, it scares me to put on a headset and to be just completely encapsulated. It yeah. Completely. But at, then again... I, I also haven't even tried it out, so I can't speak too much on it because I think I would obviously enjoy it, but it, uh, but many convolutions, but I think that's still really fucking cool that you have yeah. done that and yeah. are doing that. That's you, you're doing something uh, on a, amazing for people to be able to experience that. I really give you a homage and applause to that. 
Yeah, I mean the app the app's great, so you can just do it on your phone or your tablet or your PC or whatever. And that that way you can just you know you you can explore in your own time and in your own way. On the Oculus, it's a it was for a museum exhibit, so it's a four minute tour sort of thing. But it's wow. actually it starts in caves. So we did this other project in prehistoric caves. So there's also six different prehistoric caves you can visit. You can hear sounds that we recorded in the caves. So you can actually hear recordings we made in each cave and you can look at the cave and see the and sort of scan around and look at the uh, the cave paintings. And then there's Stonehenge in the different eras. And then there's also a, uh, a Roman theatre. So you start at prehistoric at the earliest music that we know of. And then you have Stonehenge, which is kind of in between hunter gatherer starting to be domesticated. And then you have the Roman uh, amphitheatre, mm -hmm. essentially in Cyprus, in Paphos. Um, and there they knew about acoustics. They actually got, Pythagoras got his acoustic theory from the Egyptians, probably. He I, spent I, some time in Egypt and he got his 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 stuff about Pythagor Pythagorean maths and, and music, probably from the Egyptians. But anyway... Yeah. Him and Hermes, you know, just <laughs> getting getting that, uh, that, Thoth, uh, that Thoth knowledge on. Yeah, and, and the Romans knew about acoustics, and yeah. they were deliberately designing... I mean, they got it wrong a bit, but they were des deliberately designing buildings to sound good, and they understood that if you change certain things, it changed the acoustics of the space. So again, when you're in there, you can hear a litus, uh, which is kind of horn, or you can hear aulos, which is the double pipes pan play, and you can listen to them with the acoustics of the space in. So it, it's quite... An, I, I would recommend, encourage your your listeners to download the app and have a listen because there's lots of musical examples that's I've amazing lucky. I, i've gone to some amazing places i mean i i've carried on this research we did a five-year european funded project with what was it three and a half million euros of funding like three and a half million i saw that on your funding. yeah i saw that on your thing i was going to ask you about that later do you want to go into that now well yeah sure i mean we we did Scandinavian stuff, so we reconstructed Viking music, so lyres from sunken boats that have been reconstructed, and lures, which are long tubes of wood and then metal that they made. Um, we made the tint, the carnics. If you've ever seen Asterix, sometimes the bard plays this big horn with a boar's head. Anyway, it's it's one of those. It's this crazy uh, bronze trumpet from uh, about two thousand years ago. Uh, the yeah with the aulos there's a whole thing with aulos, which are these double pipes that the Greeks played. You, it's like taking two oboes, shoving them both into your mouth at the same time, <laughs> playing one with each hand, and circular breathing them, which wow. is really difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, in fact, it was an Olympic sport for the Greeks playing aulos. It was that difficult that it was competitive. We did a water organ. The Romans had organs that they used in the games, you know, and that they actually had organs which were powered by, by water. Uh, you kind of had somebody pumping the water to create air pressure for for the organ. There were bagpipes, Viking bagpipes. So yeah, we made. I visited some amazing places. Uh, I was lucky enough to go to Sudan on another project and work on a stone that. Um, is the size of it's three meters long and two meters wide and if you hit it it rings like a bell and that's also prehistoric it's in the middle of middle of the desert that was like proper what's the name of this yeah what's the name of that stone it's called a nugara the locals called it uh, it's like a ringing stone there's this whole tradition of ringing stones yeah from, i was 
was going to bring that up earlier. I, um, yeah. I'm obsessed with ancient architecture, obviously, you know, um, but there in India, they had these big, you know, elaborate buildings. I love Indian architecture, by the way, and, and Southeast Asian and, and ancient Asian architecture that that stuff is next level. Um, but they would have all this wall of bricks, this wall of stones. Next thing you know, there's this one stone that doesn't even really look different than any other one. And you just hollow, completely hollow. And it resonates within the whole hallway. And you would have to know about it. You'd absolutely have to know about it. And so that that's just, I want to, one of my life goals, I'll tell you right now, Rupert, is to make the connections of that, this specific you know ancient culture that had cross correlations between each other and their understanding of the spiritual uh harmonics yeah i mean these ringing stones are fascinating i had a phd student studied the chinese ones and the chinese have whole orchestras of these stones and they play them uh they play them in temples and in uh, court music but there are older examples that are prehistoric that they found in burials that are four or five thousand years ago and they ring like a bell the chinese worked out how to shape the stones to tune them to give them specific pitches uh, but if you go back to the caves when we went into the caves we found some stones you know the stalactites and stalagmites some of those had been found to ring and so i was lucky oh, enough wow. to called well, in one cave anyway, we're allowed to play them. Um, they sound like this. What? I'm using marimba ballads. Oh, marimba is like one of my all-time favorite instruments of all time. that um, um, at some point we had recordings that we'd made and, we, and I was listening to this recording and I could hear this this sound and I'm like, who was playing? The, they weren't supposed to be playing the lithophones then. What's going on? <laughs> and what was happening was some of the stalagmites just ring naturally and drops of water were falling from the ceiling and hitting the, these stalagmites and making them go pong. And oh. so the cave plays these things itself oh. with water drops. And we went into one of them and and we were by a known lithophone. So it was known that this set of stalagmites ring and they had a red mark on them to mark them out. And in another cave, there's one where if you hit it, it rings and it's got a red mark on it. And the one next to it looks exactly the same, no red mark. And if you hit it, it doesn't ring. And some of them have been, the ends have been snapped off so they can take them away and play them. And we saw some some new, some stalagmites and I'm playing these these ones in this cave and I'm like there's some more really big stalagmites here do they ring and the archaeologists don't think so no and I'm like do you mind if I try and they said yeah fine and um yeah they 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 definitely rang whoa and each one you hit it was like boom boom the big ones were like boom I mean, quite, quite there are amazing. cave paintings so, in this, in these yeah, caves. Yeah. Wow. And, 
in those days, some of the earliest the cave paintings are just a red dot, and these things are marked with some of these very early cave paintings. So they're marked with things that 25,000 years ago they're playing. The, they're definitely playing them um, because we know that some of them have been broken off, and then the we know they've been broken off in the past, the ones that ring because they've grown over it. So we know that the bit grown over it is is old. So the these things are quite amazing. You get these ringing stones also all around the world, single stones which just ring where you play them. There's a tradition of ringing stones near Stonehenge where they, in Wales where they found the stones. There's a town called Mynclochlog which means ringing stone, um, weirdly. And there's these traditions all around the world of these stones that ring like a bell. And the reality is, if you hit a stone with another stone, usually it goes clunk. Mm -hmm. But the Nagaras in in the middle of Sudan, they have you know they have quite a sort of bright sound. It's a much more. It's quite quiet. I don't know if you can hear it, but it's it's, it's definitely a ring. Not it's a definitely hunk. ring. Yeah, that's not solid. Like that's not solid on solid. That sounds like a tempala drum. Yeah, it's, it's it's bizarre. And this thing is much more like a drum than a rock. And it's huge. It's enormous. And the archaeologists took us to some others that were... Um, well, one thing about this Nagara is it has holes all the way around. It's got little pits. And these pits have been worn by people hammering for hundreds of years. And we also discovered that the, the, the pits are in pairs. So people are playing two at a time. And there's lots of them. So people would stand around the edge of this rock and play them together. And we found this guy who was, I don't know, he was the oldest man in the village. And he said, yeah, when I was a child, people would stand around this instrument and play it. Uh, and everyone would, would, would play it. And the archaeologist said, if you have... If you play it musically like that, you get a particular shape of cut mark. So we know that this is from musical activity, not someone just trying to cut a hole to mm -hmm. make some sort of, you know, ritual marking or something. So this thing, there was evidence in these cut marks all the way around this rock of hundreds and hundreds of years of musical activity. And the stone was surrounded by prehistoric graves from the Neolithic as well little piles of rocks where there were people buried so this tradition of ringing rocks is the whole thing of stone is very old and goes again back to stonehenge stone has a very particular meaning to people uh, and has this sort of sacredness the, the thing of echoes coming out off off mountains mm -hmm. that was seen as a voice coming from the other world and that a flat stone surface was seen like a mirror and through the other side was the uh, other world, was the world of the spirits. Um, so the echo was like the sound of the spirits speaking back to you. It wasn't just, oh, it's an echo. Yeah. Um, so stone was holy in lots and lots of different contexts. Um, and I suppose it still is now. I mean, we think of very nice stone as being higher status than brick right if you have a stone built house it's posher than a brick house or a wooden house our cathedrals are built of very beautiful stone that's been crafted in particular shapes and stone also has these acoustic effects it is very reflective acoustically 
and creates these beautiful sonic spaces um, and have done right through our history I think um, the most amazing place I visited was the high the hypogeum of Hal Safliani in Malta oh I've I will go to the hypogeum at some point. I've told I really want to go. That's amazing. It's subterranean, yeah. right? Yeah, it's underground. It's it's what we call an ottery, which is a place to store bones. But it is the same shape and has the same carvings as the temples on the surface. So it wasn't just a place where they put bodies. It was clearly a place where they had ceremonies, where they had rituals. It was clearly some kind of temple underground. But I've been there twice and we did really quite an in-depth acoustic study. Wow. And the acoustics are astonishing. It's like a 30-second reverberation time. <laughs> and the harmonics in the space all line up. They line up like a musical series, so they ring. Um, and the reason the acoustics are so amazing is if if you change the shape of the building by a couple of centimetres, then the acoustics would stop working. So it's like they dug it, and they dug it with antler picks out of the rock. And this thing is, you know, 20, 30 metres long or something. Dug underground with their bare hands and, you know, bits of ivory. And there's a guy called Yegor Reznikov, who was, you know, the grandfather of archaeoacoustics, of the study of acoustic archaeology. And he also sings. He's a chant singer. And this is him singing in the hypogeum. Oh, wow. quite an amazing sound and I think I'm starting to come to the conclusion that I think sound and music and religion and ritual and belief and spirituality whatever you want to call it are kind of so bound up together that you can't really separate them I mean I'm I I'd like to think that I'd agree spirituality spirituality and religion are people uh, what happens when people try to understand the feelings you have when you listen to music <laughs> so you know it's almost like music comes first you make music <laughs> you you make sound in a ritual context and our ideas of spirituality come up because when you when you listen to that music you have these feelings you have these emotions you have these experiences that are beyond the everyday and music takes you to those experiences and we have to try and understand them. And we construct spirituality and religion in response to music, I think, in some ways. Um, I think that that's the, the way... I mean, it's a bit of an extreme claim to make. But they're so tightly bound up together, understanding and meaning-making and music, that I don't, and sound and acoustics, and that I don't think you can separate them. I, you know, you're in, you're in, you're in good circles around here bringing up that... that that context because that's what we're all about we you know we <clears throat> we love uh we love alternative history around here because it's it's just a lot of stories that we haven't heard uh you know kind of taking on different contexts and viewpoints which is good for us but you know when it comes to people of you know high academia and you know they're you know they're they're little less uh 
tenuous for speculation, right? But us over here, lay people, content creators, we can speculate. Um, but we do that off air, you know, or uh, other times, not when we're having these conversations. Uh, but, but that being said, you know, there is this kind of kind of thing that should get brushed a little bit. There's this, this, this middle ground between academia and just normal conversation and the allowance of creative imagination to be able to come into play because there is something that's real about that middle ground area, that conscious area of speculation and intuition that even high up government officials can say that they've hired clairvoyance before to try to track down people you know, and somewhere they try to remote view people. So, you know, there's a lot of mystery and I really respect everything that you brought to the table today. Uh, it's amazing. There was a couple, uh, I have like five following questions, I think sure. before, and then any more sound, sound samples you want to bring up. We've covered a lot of ground here and this is incredible conversation. Um, but I wanted to, uh, to start by mentioning, you brought up the Romans before, and I read uh, Vertruvius's book, uh, the ten, the ten fundamentals of architecture, and in that it just it blew my mind of his the the Roman theaters, which I didn't really know about before. I knew about the Colosseums and you know a lot of these other um, very important pieces of architecture, but the theaters were heavy and possibly the most highest architectural feats and their most prized possessions because they were heavy into the acoustics and they were doing some some crazy like putting putting like bronze uh almost trumpets or ears in corners underneath seats and things like that and i was wondering if uh if you had any more context on the uh the roman um the Roman style of, of arc, uh, acoustics, if you could uh, enlighten me, please. Yeah, it's really interesting. Vitruvius is the founder of modern acoustics, and he got some things wrong. So some of the things he did, he, he did certain things architecturally that he thought would affect the acoustics, and they don't. But you're right, he was making bronze um, bronze vessels, I don't know what you call them, vases, yeah. massive vases, and putting them under specific places in the seats so that they would resonate. And we do that in recording studios now where we put similar um, sort of bell-shaped jars in the wall to capture specific frequencies and to reduce um, unwanted frequencies in the studio. So they were trying to tweak the acoustics. And you asked before, how did this early physics and prehistoric physics, how did they do that? Well, they did it through trial and error mostly. Yeah. They did it by knowing, oh, if you do this, it has this result. Frankly, that's all that science is. All science is. Yeah. <laughs> you take an apple and you and you drop it, it falls, and we call that gravity. But it's just, you know, trial and error. If you drop it, it keeps falling. Yeah, okay, that's a law then. <laughs> and similarly, acoustics, you know, you build a you build a theatre, a Roman theatre, and you build one slightly different shape, and you go, oh, this one sounds better. And we made the angle of the seats different, so let's stick with that angle of seats. And, yeah, and then they, they did some maths and think, oh, well, that angle of seats seems to mean this, so... Yeah, we'll do that. And a semicircle seems to work nicely. And if we put a big wall behind it, when we put the wall, when you're building an amphitheater or a theater, a Roman theater, you have these sort of semicircular seats, but then there's a flat wall at the front. And 
they'd have built this bit by bit. And when they put the wall up, they'd have suddenly gone, oh, that changes the acoustics quite a lot. Oh, that's important. Let's do that. You know, and when they make the, the wall flatter or when they plaster it, it changes again. And they go, oh, when we put the plaster on, that's better. So let's make the plaster really shiny. Oh, that bit that's got marble on, we can hear the echoes off the marble. That's great. Let's have more marble. <laughs> They learn about the reflectivity of plaster and comparative reflectivity of marble just because they were builders and they, they weren't deaf, they weren't stupid. Mm -hmm. And they observed the effects of what they did. And they yeah, they built these incredible acoustics. I was in one in Turkey uh, oh. called Aspendos. And it's oh. one of the best preserved theater, Roman theatres in the world. And it's in, they still have opera there. And one of the reasons they have opera there is you can stand on the stage at the front because uh, we tried this. My son was down at the bottom because he couldn't be asked to walk up the stairs. And I was right at the back and we could talk to each other quite comfortably. And this is a place with a 3,000 capacity, um, 3,000 3, capacity seating. So imagine mm. starting, standing at the back of a 3,000 capacity theatre and trying to talk to someone at the front, even if it's empty. You just wouldn't be able to hear each other. But because of the shape of the seats and because of the acoustics of the space, sound travels right to the back in the most amazing way. Um, and because there's an open roof, but there is some enclosure, it has this beautiful acoustic. It's that combination of the circularness, the sloping seats, uh, the flat wall at the front, uh, the materials they use, so the plaster and the marble, and then a, a lot of care produces really quite beautiful acoustics in the space. And of course they had, it's the beginning of theatre, it's the beginning of formal performance spaces where large audiences sit and listen to music and to, to singing and to acting. So they cared a lot about their spaces. Some of the work we did was um, reconstructing Roman music. There, there are some little, there's not much, but there's a few little bits of Roman hymns and there's a little bit of Greek musical notation and there's a few things we have. Uh, we did one thing called Hymn to the Muse, which is a only had the words and Steph Connor is this singer who reconstructs the lyrics melody from the shape of the words because if, if you say up, you, you tend to go up. So she kind of used that to create shapes to the different words, if you see what I mean. So we came up was there a predetermined script that she was following for that, or was she making up yeah, the... Yeah, she was, she, she was using the Roman words. Oh, you so said So it was that. a Roman oh. hymn. And then they, cool. she was trying to work out what, what the melody might be. Um, and she could work out what the rhythm of the words are just from speech, you know, from the way you would speak it. And she played a Roman harp uh, to go with it. And actually, I then did this project called Dub Archaeology, where I took all these recordings I'd made and added synthesizers. You probably, you've heard some of it on Spotify, I think. Um, as my other alter ego is Professor Chill, I had synthesizer sounds and lots of different sounds. I'll play a bit of that if you don't mind. Um, and this one's called Hymn to the Muse uh, and features Steph, Steph Connor. And so what is this? This is your synth right here. This is a really nice sine wave going on. Starts with just some big synthesizer pads and then the harp, it's a lyre, not a harp actually. Uh, and then Steph comes in singing after a while. Maybe I should skip on. I'll skip on to somewhere in the middle of it. 
so you can well i'll yeah and send me any of these i'll plug them i'll put 30 minutes of music at the end of the show even oh great so nice this stuff is that mm. I'm interested in rec in recreating what it would have sounded like to be in an archaeological place in the past because I'm interested in my responses to those sounds and to that music and thinking about if my feelings how much my feelings and my responses my experiences resonate with those of the past in other words what I can learn about myself and my connection with my ancestors by reconstructing the sounds of the ancient past um, to learn more about our society and think about what's changed from then and what's still the same because there are lots of things about these things about music and sound that are just the same we still love music we still love sound and so did people 2000 years ago in Rome 5000 years ago in Stonehenge 40,000 years ago in caves in Germany and France. Um, but the thing is, when you do these recreations, they're not really a reconstruction, they're a construction. They're always going to be a modern construction. Now, you always have to fill in the gaps a little bit, but that's normal. Archaeologists do that all the time when there's a wall missing. They fill it in. Um, so we fill in the gaps as accurately as possible. We try not to do anything that we know isn't the case. But I think sometimes it's good to just take some of these sounds and add synthesizers and say, look, mm -hmm. it's a construction anyway. So let's make it clear that it's a construction and let's make some music that allows us to connect with these sounds today. I think in an ideal world, I'd start to hear bone flutes and lures and all these different ancient instruments becoming popular again. And, you know, people busking on the streets with them or playing the orchestras. Oh, yeah, one one can dream, one can hope. I. I'm lucky enough to live uh, very rurally. I'm a farmer out here in Northern California. And talk about acoustics because you can hear the neighbors talking and we don't live that close. <laughs> you know, we're up, it's the mountains are like this and driving around, you know, if you've driven through Northern California, you know, it's just, it's hills and, and mountains and all these different landscapes. And, um, yeah, it's quite fascinating. And the birds, too. I'm a huge, huge bird lover. I, I've, I have so many wings and feathers, and I get gifts all the time from uh, from the birds in the forest. But just hearing the, the, the heavy flap, not, let alone the birds singing. Like, okay, yeah, bird singing is amazing. But the flapping of their wings is a... Like the and it's super low oh man i i want to get some good clips of that 
but I, I love that too. I, I really have a dream of, you know, just driving around the States, going to different sacred sites, uh, in a van, you know, and just creating, uh, sitting at a sacred space for, you know, a month at a time and creating a song or an EP or something that encapsulates the energy of that area using natural recordings, but also using synthesizer because, you know, it's electronic, but also in the same sense, it's still created within our atmosphere. Therefore, it's organic in the sense that it was created and we can merge things. It's okay to merge things, but to know what is, you know, sacredly separate, uh, you know, and individualized is important, but we can collab them and that's what art is. And we're allowed to do that. We are so allowed to do that. Um, another, another question I wanted to ask you was about bells. Bells are a huge part of history, but they're also a mystery. Why do you think we lived in a time with, with all these bell towers and then that just all of a sudden stopped? What stopped the bells from being rung? Well, some of these earlier bells are these ones in China, and they're the Qing, or chime stones. And they ring like bells, and like bells, they have, uh, they have, they have non-harmonic um, partials. So, in other words, the, w the way the sound is constructed is, is quite unusual. It's not like an octave and a fifth in mm. the harmonics of the sound. So, it has quite a characteristic sound, and these stones sound like bells when you hit them. And then they created these metal instruments that they also play that are based on the, they're the same shape as the stone ones. So, bells have a quite a long tradition. The people in in cathedrals in Christian culture would ring these bells to bring people to church. And they would have stone bells before they had metal ones. Stone bells are older than metal bells. So that that is, you make a good point. Bells are things that you hit and they ring. Well, originally they were stones, but then we discovered metal and we discovered that metal, if you shape it in particular shapes, ring. And the bell towers in Christian culture, but also in lots of temple cultures, they stick a long way up in the air so that people know where they are. So that if you're in the countryside anyway, you know, oh, right, it's this time I need to go to, I need to go to church. Uh, it's kind of a way of acoustically calling people. I mean, in Islamic culture, they sing instead. They sing from the tower. Um, in Tibetan culture, they do different things with bells and you have singing bowls and different kinds of bells that you ring in different ways. Um, so, I think when people discovered metal and they discovered the strange things that metal did, like hitting a drum, you hit a piece of metal, it rings. Um, I think that goes back to flint or chert, I think sometimes you call it in America. If you hit a piece of flint, which is what prehistoric people made all their tools out of, you know, the earliest axes and you light fires with it. If you hit it, it rings and the the better the quality of the stone, the better it rings. So if there's a load of pieces on the ground and you want to work out which is the good piece, you tap it. And if it goes bing, then you know it's a good bit because it doesn't mm. have many inclusions. It doesn't have knots inside. Um, so people were used to the ringing sound of, of stones and these bits of flint from probably hundreds of thousands of years ago, from when humans first started using tools. So those are bells, really. Those bits of flint are the earliest bells. Wow. Then metal, metal appears. Now, my archaeology isn't that good, but I think metal appears, what, about 
um, six, seven, eight thousand years ago, not very long ago, the Bronze Age. It's 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 not very long, and it's a so little you, sticky, but but yeah, you're you're right. <laughs> it's it is part. yeah. In, in different times, different parts of the world, it's metals discovered differently. Um, but when you make metal, suddenly you also discover it rings, a bit like flint does, or these special chimestones do. So that would have been quite a magical thing. And the things they made out of metal, they made bells out of metal, which called spirits. You know, they talk about using bell book and candle to call the spirits. Um, and there's there's lots of ritual use of bells. But musical instruments generally, I mean, the carnex, this instrument I talked about before, is a conical two millimeter thick piece of bronze which it's almost impossible to make nowadays, even with modern techniques, exactly mm -hmm. the way they did it. You know, the, the most elaborate piece of technology was often a musical instrument. Like you said, the Roman theatres, these incredibly grand things were made for music and theatre, not for functional, not for agriculture. You know, they made the most remarkable um, things to make sound. And bells are quite complicated and remarkable pieces of metalwork they're not simple things to make they use a lot of metal up which is really expensive stuff mm -hmm. and quite hard to make I, I doubt you or i could make a bell by melting stones <laughs> and casting it into you know molten bronze and getting the right amount of tin with the iron to make it ring right i mean it was a high science absolutely yeah. especially in those times you you were you know you worked your way up to to that that point and yes people started making weapons out of those things but they also made musical instruments and perhaps the musical instruments were more important to them than the weapons because the weapons defend you defend your body but the musical instruments defend your soul and that was kind of your spirit and that was kind of more important in a way i think to people oh the trumpets of jericho you know, there, there's some, there's even some, some, I know, this is going down a way speculative route, but some people say that those old copper cannons were actually blasting, uh, special Hertz and, um, they were sound cannons, uh, which, which is a whole side tangent. I haven't done much research on it, but, um, thank you so much. That was a huge broad, uh, awesome understanding of bells. And I, I really knew you would have a good answer on that. Now I have two more questions for you. I, one is there is someone who is fascinating in history to me, um, especially when I look at, you know, things like hermeticism and alchemy, which are things that fascinate me in the Renaissance period. I love the Renaissance period. It is so crazy. Like everybody was up to just up to their neck and mystery and mysticism and magic and masonry and everything was going on during the Renaissance period. It was a height. It was the Renaissance for a reason. There was also a lot of other brutal things happening, but we won't talk about that. We'll talk about the, <laughs> the strange mysticism and alchemy. Uh, there was a character named Robert Flood who had this um this series of work i guess uh he was an astrologer and a and a physician or a physicist uh and he created this thing called the sounds of the spheres or music of the spheres where he yeah. uh, created the zodiac uh alignment to specific notes that correlate to celestial 
understanding because he was an astrologer now what do you think about that well the music of this i mean the renaissance is triggered by the rediscovery by christians of roman texts and greek texts because the islamic culture had kept those books whereas a lot of them had been burned by the christians as pagan or whatever so they rediscovered medicine they rediscovered all these things including i think some of the stuff that gave them information that led to the music of the spheres and i think it lines up with some of the ideas in in roman culture but obviously discoveries in astronomy and astrology are all kind of intermingled in the music of the spheres and some of it is kind of undeniably true and was how we understand uh, how we understood music theory until really quite recently um hmm. music of the spheres was a dominant idea of uh, how music works and actually if you if you look at sound sound is a series of oscillations so you understand that if you have a single photo and then you take another photo and another one if you take 24 a second and play them 24 times a second you get a movie you start to see it as instead of a, a series of single images, you see 24 a second as a moving picture, a stream of images. And similarly with sound, if you hear 24 hits in a second, you hear it as a single continuous note, a bass note. And we call that 24 hertz. It's a low frequency, but it's a waveform, it's an oscillation. Mm -hmm. So if something repeats 24 times a second, we hear it, that's the lowest bass note we can hear. If it repeats 440 times a second, we call that the musical note A. That's that's what we call A, it's 440 hertz. And an A above that is 880. So m music is, is all oscillations. It's something repeating. If you slow down below 20, you start to get a period of oscillation we call rhythm. So if something happens once a second, we call that one BPM or crotchet equals 60, 60 oscillations a minute. Um, and we have lots of oscillations. So we have bars in music where four beats in a bar and um, you might have six, 16 bars is a sort of length of time. So music is all about these repeats and frequencies and oscillations. And it, it goes into oscillations go higher into the ultraviolet when they get much higher into microwaves and you start that starts to become light if you slow down from light you get music if you slow down from music you get rhythm if you get slower oscillations from rhythm well between the two you get vibration so about 10 hertz that's all, 15 hertz is vibration 10 hertz is a rhythm 2 hertz is a rhythm 1 hertz is one oscillation a second what do we call one oscillation a second? Well, we call it second. It's time. If you have 60 oscillations of a second, that's what we call a minute, right? 60 seconds is a minute. 60 minutes is an hour. And what's an hour? An hour is, well, 24 hours is the period of time it turns the Earth to go around in a circle. That's a bass note. It's <laughs> a bass note. It's just a very, very low bass note. We can't hear it, but we perceive it because we see it get light and dark. So it's like something getting flashing on and off, you know? So we, ca we can't hear it, but we can see it. So we perceive it. Uh, and it's like something going boom, boom, on and off, you know, bang and stopping, light, dark. It's, if you slow that down even more, 
you get a day and then you get 365 days, 364 and a quarter days. That's the time it takes the Earth to go around the sun, which is another oscillation. It's a sine wave. It's, it's a pitch. It's a very, very, very low bass note. How do you uh, recreate you that with a uh, synth? Do you have to have a special synth for that? Like, how do you tune your synth to get to a 364 well, hertz? Uh, well, what you would do is multiply. So, uh, you know, you hear those you hear those album of whale sound. Whale sound doesn't sound like that. They pitch it up an octave so you can hear it. They double the speed of it all so you can hear it. And what you would do with the synthesizer is you would take the frequency of the Earth going around the sun, which is 365, and then you'd work out what Jupiter is, which must be a lot longer, and then Uranus and Pluto and Mercury. And it's a set of ratios. So if you multiply those up, instead of being one in, one in 364 and a quarter days, you could make it 364 and a quarter hertz, couldn't you? And then you could work out how many days Jupiter is and make that hertz. And then if you look on a table you can find online, you can convert hertz, which is pitch or frequency, and you can convert that into notes. So people have done that. Wow. And basically okay. what you do is you shift everything up by octaves. So you say, okay, we take 365 and we multiply it all of those periods of time, the revolving of the Earth, the revolving of the Moon, how quickly the Moon goes around the Earth, the Moon's going around the planets, all of these things. Um, and then maybe even you could have a comet coming in um, and multiply them until they move along. So I said there's this spectrum from years to days to hours to minutes to seconds to rhythms to vibration to pitches to sound above sound is ultrasound and then you get infrared and then you get light and microwaves and whatever it's a spectrum of of waves of waveforms with very very short waveforms things moving incredibly quickly when you get to light and right down at the bottom something moving around at the sun which is you know very very slow I guess the slowest oscillation is the Big Bang, everything starting and then shrinking, <laughs> a big crunch at the end. Mega um, base. So what you do is you, you multiply it, you shift everything up the spectrum and you sort of multiply it and keep the ratios the same. So you can hear what it would sound like if a human ear was big enough. If we were the <laughs> size of the galaxy, if, if we were some sort of deity that was the size of the solar system, then we'd be able to hear the sound of the Earth going around the sun because you know our lifetime would be measured in millennium probably. It would probably sound so, like a like a whale in space. Yeah. So you could you could what you would hear is a set of pitches that are related to each other like a chord, and it's called the harmony of the spheres because there is an unbelievable harmony in this stuff. As you will know if you're into astronomy, that the fact that this the the moon is exactly um, the same proportion of distance between the Earth and the moon's distance and the size of the Earth to the moon, which allows us to have um, eclipses, right? Mm -hmm. Just because there's this exact ratio of 10 to 1 or whatever uh, between the Earth's size and the moon's size and the distance and the size of the sun so that it fits perfectly in the sun. sun. A lot uh of these things just... They have these incredible sort of magical physics to them, don't they? Yeah. 
relationships of them. How how people... how how would we encapsulate the sound of an eclipse then? At that point, because um, that is something I'm super interested. Because the reason I bring this up is I actually have a friend who studies and is an astrologer, and she does readings all the time. She's big into history, big into all the different areas of astrology. And through our research, we found the same character, Robert Flood. And so I've been working with her to make music. She sees what's happening in the sky and sees what's happening on the sky clock level. And then we will try to coordinate and make the sounds off of just Robert Flood's uh, maps. Now I'm going to <laughs> look into that chart that you brought up earlier um that was super interesting i'm gonna have to get that from you again but and so i i am just fascinated by this it it seems like it would be potentially a future of music if we could get this to be more of a movement that we could understand what's happening astrologically and bring it down here to this level there are many composers who've embraced this concept and tried to include it in their music um, through history, from sort of Roman days, I think, right through Renaissance and and classical composers, through to people nowadays trying to do it the electronics. There's lots of people who've who've embraced this idea and either conceptually uh, or basically you turn you turn the the periods of cycling of the planets into a set of numbers, and then you use those numbers to construct artwork, whether it's music or painting or whatever um, and there is a beauty to the symmetry and to the systematic motion of the stars and the planet which are immensely complicated because when you see it in a in a drawing all the planets are on the same you know it's like they're all traveling exactly the same direction they're, they're perfectly on a 2d line whereas the reality is they don't even move perfectly in circles they you know there's slight ellipses and so the, it's a very, very interesting subject, and it's fascinated composers and musicians for years. And the idea of trying to perfectly reconstruct the solar system in music, I think, grips people because people understand that the ideas in astronomy and astrology, which thousands, hundreds of years ago, were not separate sciences, you know, they, they were very much mixed up. Um, that the sort of cosmological ideas that are present in the mathematical unity of the spheres is also present in music, where a doubling of frequency gives you an octave and a fifth is one and a half times or three times the frequency, but an octave. Down. All of this stuff mathematically exists in music as well. So the Chinese very much understood that maths and music and astrology, mathematics and astrology and all these things line up and interact with each other and inform each other. Bach was very into his maths, mathematics, uh, and um, music is, is all about numbers. It's all about twos and threes and fours and eights and sixteens. And, and when you look at it from a sonic or acoustic perspective, it's about doubling and frequency ratios. And, you know, these, these things are as a fascinating and yes. if you google this stuff you'll find a whole world out there of people who are interested in this stuff yeah it's it's mind-blowing do you have any uh good books or references to some of these chinese um 
composers or ideas, uh, theologies in that that you're talking about? Because I, I love Chinese history. A lot of the Chinese stuff is in Chinese, sadly. I had a PhD student who was Chinese, so wrote his PhD <laughs> in English, so translated a load of stuff. But um, the Chinese discovered equal had equal temperament hundreds of years before the West did. Yeah. You know, uh, they they had a the mathematics of um, of music worked out a long, long time ago. Um, a very long culture. So, no, there's no particular reference, but you, you will find, you know, Google is a wonderful thing. <laughs> it is. Yeah, the instruments in China, the rhythms, the polyrhythms, the, um, yeah, the hidden tones that are in, in some of their music, uh, the microtones, micro... Uh, microtones uh, of Eastern music in general is really fascinating and interesting. I mean, once you start, um, you know, developing the deeper understanding of music, when you start digging down that rabbit hole, there's really not much you can't, you shouldn't focus on too much more because it's so deep that depending on how serious you want to take it, you will have an entire lifetime of work of yeah. digging up. So it's like, you want to have all these other interests or do you really want to understand the true nature of music? And I think that is why it was held in such high regard as one of these seven sacred sciences. Yeah. I mean, in China, everything's linked because their, their writing is with a paintbrush, right? So, mm writing and painting are the same thing they're not separate so art and literature are are the same and similarly speaking and music are the same thing because in china you have these three tones so if you say jing going upwards or ching going flat or ching going down it means three separate things so their music is tonal is musical so there's music in their speech so music, speech, writing, art are all fundamentally interlinked. And so advanced, we discovered that these ancient chimestones were all tuned. That they, they had a standard <laughs> tuning. They, How the fuck were they tuning they, them? That's amazing. Well, I mean, there was through the presumably ear. in the emperors in the either by ear with a perfect pitch. Yeah. Which is entirely possible. Yeah. Or because somewhere in the emperor's palace there was a single stone that everyone tuned to. And that you tune to that, or, um, or every, I mean, how do we tune nowadays? You can still tune a guitar if you don't have one. It could be slightly out of, you know. We are, yeah, we have tuning forks. They didn't have tuning forks, but they had stones. Yeah. That rang, and they understood how many centimeters, or not centimeters, how long you had to make that to make it a particular pitch. And these are these are multifunction. Uh, so, these are multi. I've had I've had. Uh, almost ascendant type of spiritual experiences with my tuning forks. It was quite intense, the meditative process, gong therapy. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's connected to the consciousness and just to wrap it back into Stonehenge, you brought it up in your paper, as well as when you're talking about Robert flood time, time, Celestial timing, the sun rising over the stone, time being expanded, maybe even bent through our perception of consciousness, the slowing down and halting of that through reverberation. Music is almost like a time shift, a time channeling of sorts. And I'm wondering what the, uh, the clock aspect of Stonehenge is and if there's any sundial aspects there. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's a, it, it's an astronom astronomical, astronomical calculator. So it allows you to calculate when the moon rises and when the when there's going to be different um, uh, celestial events. I mean, from, I mean, there's been lots of work looking at that. Um, there's stones that are placed which allow you to do all sorts of complex calculations. The most obvious one being to tell you when it's the solstice because the the sun and the moon both line up in fact the moon the sun rises moves like 45 degrees round or 180 degrees round and sets and then the moon rises 45 degrees round as the sun sets the moon rises and goes the other way i mean it's like a celestial dance it's astonishing that's something people haven't really appreciated they've talked about the sun but the moon also can sort of interact um, and you get this full moon rising when we're at mary hill the moon was up, it was a full moon. And when you're standing and you're looking up and there's a circle of stones and it's like a it, it's like a picture frame. It's like someone's framed the sky. And when wow. you look up in this beautiful Washington state sky on a clear day, you just see this incredible starscape and the moon slowly climbing into this frame of, of circle. It's a great place to visit. If you're ever anywhere near um, anywhere near halfway between Seattle and Portland and in Washington State. It, the Mary Hill Monument, it's great. Oh, I'm, I'm going to go there. My home, I'm going back for Thanksgiving, and I'm for sure checking it out. It's only an hour and a half drive from my house. And you have to go at night on a cloudless day. It's just, it's quite remarkable. Uh, one thing I'd like to do is get 200 people together from a, some local drum circle or something and get them to drum in the space and see if we can get the place resonating, not with the bass speaker, but with actual people drumming, because that would prove that you could also do that at Stonehenge, and that would be a mighty fine experiment to do. One day I'll, I'll manage to do that. But you were talking about time, and Stonehenge was all about time. It was about meeting the ancestors who died hundreds of years ago and going back in time to be with them almost. But... The Greeks have often more than one word when we have only one. So they have more than four words mm. for love or whatever. Mm. But they have they have two words for time. One is chronos, which is like chronology or chronometer. It's the ticking of a clock time that has quantity, that has number. So chronos is time that has quantity. Kairos is another word that means time in Greek. But it means time that has quality. It has time that is a special moment in time. It's the sort of time that you experience when you've drifted off and mm. you think only five minutes have passed, but actually an hour's gone, which also mm -hmm. happens when you listen to music. And music has the power to take you from a Kronos state of mind, which has quantity, and it's the ticking of the clock, and it's the everyday time, into kind of magical time, into Kairos time. How do you spell that? In time. Kairos? K-A-I-R-O-S. And Kairos is a concept I find really useful because it's also the time that we experience when we have trance experience or trance-like experiences, whether it's the mildest trance when you're listening to a piece of music and, like I say, you lose track of time, or whether it's you've been on a dance floor all night and suddenly the lights come on and it's six in the morning. Yes. How did that happen? <laughs> yes. Or it's the sort of tr the trance experience that more extreme when people have all you know these 
possession trances or trances that people have when they take chemical substances and which they've done for tens of thousands of years and they go into an altered state of time and the standard way that you can tell that someone's been in a trance is that it has a symptom and the symptom of trance is loss of time loss of perception of time and it's be not because time has disappeared it's because you've gone into a chronos sense of time where time is different and it doesn't tick anymore it has quality not quantity and we experience experience that in the special moments in our lives when we're not looking at the clock when suddenly you've been talking for two hours to somebody in a on a podcast or whatever and time's <laughs> just gone past whereas if you're sitting watching the clock two hours goes incredibly slowly Time speeds up or slows down in our perception, at least, uh, in lots of different ways. Not just when you go faster and approach the speed of light. Time speeds up or slows down in our understanding of it. Um, and Kairos makes sense of that and makes sense of entrainment, which is where we, we link into a certain, certain time. So Stonehenge is a place of Kairos, not of Kronos. It's a place where you would go... In a Kairos sense, in a Kronos sense, where you would want to go on the solstice on a particular date, a day that had quantity, but when you were there, you would ha take part in a ritual that would take you out of time, that would take you into experience, into a point where you weren't thinking about the ticking of the clock, or you weren't waiting for the rising of the sun, or you maybe you were rising, waiting for the rising of the sun, but the experience you having was an other, an other one, a one of altered state of consciousness or um which is another word for kairos i guess and music is one of the principal ways of achieving those kairos states of those altered states of consciousness those spiritual moments those moments of a special meaning whatever you want to call them music is how we use it sometimes we use music to make people dance and dance is what makes people go into those experiences but music is nearly always there Yes, sometimes people sit in silence, um, but more often than not, they don't. <laughs> more often than not, in those spiritual contexts, or that even when you're just having a special moment yourself, there's a piece of music playing in the background, and it plays an important role. So music has a, this incredible power to alter our perception of time, and that's, I think, what's going on in Stonehenge, and that's one of the reasons I figure there was music at whatever ritual happened at the solstices in Stonehenge. Where, to put it in context, there may have only been 20,000 people in the UK at the time. It was a very small, sparsely populated place, and 5,000 of them were at Stonehenge at a time. We know that because of they found a load of cattle bones. and that, Anyway, they've estimated you know about 5,000 wow. people in in at once so imagine one in four of the population of the whole of the uk collecting in one place maybe not every year maybe every 30 years to celebrate you know the passing of a of a great leader or something traveling by boat from scotland traveling from all over the, from wales maybe bringing a giant stone with them who knows <laughs> it's uh it's an amazing story and I it is music is still a part of it the Stonehenge Festival happened for many years at Stonehenge, a hip, kind of hippie festival, which was brought to a halt because it was damaging the archaeology. But um, after the Druids complained about being stopped from celebrating to the European court, um, the government had to allow people again to celebrate. So now every solstice or every um, equinox, 
you can go to Stonehenge for free. You can go into the stone circle where you're not allowed most of the time. And you can, you can, you know, do what you want. There'll be other people there and people wait for the sun to come up. Uh, and they do that every year. It's a, it's a good tip if you're ever in the UK and you happens to be, you know, near one of the equinoxes or the solstice. Go to Stonehenge and you'll hear people making music and, and having their own kind of contemporary experience. And it helps you to think back and what it would have been like, takes you back to what it might have been like, what it might have sounded like to be there thousands of years ago. And if there's one thing to uh, take from this podcast, it's next time you go to any archaeological site or any kind of sacred site, don't just look at it, listen to it. Clap your hands. See what comes back. Uh, shout or sing. See what comes back. See what it's out. Listen to the sound of other people or the sound of birds or the sound of the wind. And... It's important to do that because a lot of these places were oral cultures where sound was important as vision. Our culture is all about vision. We write things down, we watch television, we look at screens, but that's not our tradition. Our tradition is speech and listening. Mm -hmm. So you go to these ancient places, listen, because it opens up a whole new perspective, I think. And that's what my research is all about. All right, I give it to you. This is uh, we went through a lot in two hours. Um, yeah, and how so long's your show, how long's your show usually? Well, we do two hours. Two hours. I, I mean, I've I've done a four hour episode. You know, we 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 don't like to go less than two hours because okay. when we're talking about such big, deep topics, there's you know, there's all these little subtle details that will slowly bring themselves to surface over the time of conversation, and so. Yeah. Um, I have notes that I pre-write and then I write notes as we're talking because, you know, there's just so much. Um, so I, I really appreciate you, appreciate your work and your time. And yeah, I think everybody's going to be able to take a lot away from this because one of the things that we hope to inspire to um, everybody under the sun <laughs> is that our ancestry is important uh, as a global sense you know on a local sense for sure but just we it's important for us to get back to the roots especially during these times i think these times have shown us so much more than any other time throughout within the past i mean it's always time to collect back to our roots that's where we need to take society we're going to a highly technologically evolved and separated future which is okay in some senses but if it's not managed correctly everything in the past could slip away from understanding and it will only be held in high initiatory places and you know you'll get back to some sort of um you know hierarchical place in society but i don't want it to be that i want it to so but the internet is good for that type of thing where we're able yeah. to communicate on a global level yeah, no, it's great. It's been really interesting and enjoyable talking. Um, I'll send you a box link. It's like Dropbox, but it's called Box because it's in Europe. Uh, anyway, and I ha I'll, um, I'll send you a link to that, and it'll have a whole set of sound files that you can you can use and access. You'll also find that I've got a YouTube page that has a load of video files on it that are related to this stuff. So there's a load of stuff on my YouTube page which you can 
find if you can. Oh, amazing! I'll send you some. Li I'll send you some links and some audio that you can you can add in. And let me know when you've when you've got it ready to put out. Absolutely. So well, before we sign off on the on the recording aspect, just any last messages or if people if you want people reaching out, you know, put that information. If you have, uh, uh, you know, you want to plug any of your stuff, this is the time. Okay. Yeah. So you can see more of my information on my YouTube stuff. Look up Professor Chill on YouTube or Rupert Till on YouTube. You'll find me. Uh, you can find music that I make on uh, Spotify and all other digital platforms. There's quite a lot of it on YouTube as well. Uh, if you Google me, Rupert Till, you'll find many of the papers that I've published. If you want to read the original you know, scientific stuff, the academic publications, you'll find it on ResearchGate and Academia. They're two places where I, I publish a lot of my stuff. It's all archived there. So there's loads of material out there if you want to find out more. Awesome. And uh, yeah, this has been a pleasure. Uh, a lot to chew on, a lot to take away. Uh, and Fire Tribe, if you guys can't get down with that, wake up. <laughs>